An apple tree is just like a person. In order to thrive, it needs companionship that's similar to it in some ways, but quite different than others. Jeffrey Stepakoff. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I hope uh, everyone's having a good week and weekend uh, so far, uh, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, uh, I know that uh, I had mentioned last week's episode that... um, the one coming up next week might be slightly delayed. Um, I think I should be able to have it out at the regular time. I'm planning on recording it before I leave town uh, Wednesday this coming week. So um, hopefully it will be up at our regular time next Monday. But uh, worst case, uh, it may be up uh, that time on Tuesday. But uh, we should be good. Um, didn't really have too much feedback from the last episode, at least no questions, although I did make a mistake myself, which I'm going to be pointing out here in a moment. But um, I would like to thank everyone for listening and who has continued to listen. Um, and I hope you will enjoy this episode and uh, share, let friends know, that kind of thing. So, um, this week we will be continuing our study uh, of humans at 8,000 to 6,000 BC, BCE, uh, and we're going to be looking at the peoples living in Central Asia. Now, I'll be defining what I mean by that term uh, shortly, so expect some geography and environmental talk in this episode, Um, maybe a little bit more than normal but uh, at least in comparison to what we talk about with humans. But I do think it is necessary, and it will, of course, help us when we get to this region in future episodes. And uh, that is one thing I need to correct from last week. I do. Um, I said that we wouldn't be talking about what is uh, now modern Kazakhstan this week. Well, I rechecked my notes and my maps, and I will be talking about areas that make up the majority of what this country is. So I apologize for being a bit dumb, but um, I think that kind of thing shows that even someone who has a passion for things like history and geography and maps and spends a lot of time uh, studying them can have blind spots or areas where uh, the perceptions are a little skewed. And now, I don't know about most parts of the world, but I don't remember Central Asia ever really being discussed in um, primary school or grade school, as it's known in the U.S., unless it was in relation to either um, the USSR, uh, the Mongolian Empire, or um, the Russian Empire. One of those three is usually when it's brought up. Um, And even in college, I don't recall many courses associated with the that region uh, specifically um i had some classes on things like the um the ottoman empire and like early indian civilizations and there was a lot of talk about their various interactions with the peoples living in the region but i don't recall any classes or courses that were focused on the region from the people who live there's points of view. Um, And while I have done my own reading and studying since then, I still have large gaps in my knowledge when it comes to um, 
this uh, this region. So um, it is one I am looking forward to learning a lot about and um, letting you guys know what I've learned and uh, maybe us talking about it and learning uh, about it together. So um, with uh, that kind of uh, out of the way, uh, let us get back to it and let us define where we are in the world. So we ended last week after speaking about uh, Turkmenistan and the Yaitun sites of the Kopet Dag Mountains. Um, it is these mountains that form the southwestern boundary of Central Asia. Um, the eastern banks of the Caspian Sea and around that to the northern tip until you reach, uh, I think it's the Buzan River in the west, which is a tributary of, um, oh, forgive me, I believe it's the, the Volga, but it may also be the Don. I, I didn't write that down. But it, it, is, a, it is part of the, uh, I guess, the delta that feeds into the Caspian Sea. Um, and everything south of the Ural Mountains and the Siberian forests is the northern border. Uh, and this is located kind of in, again, modern-day Kazakhstan. The eastern border is made up of a number of mountain ranges. Uh, from north to south, these are the Alyai and the Tian Shan and the Pamir Mountains. Um, the southern border is the Hindu Kush mountain range. So the modern uh, countries that exist in this space is um, in this space is um, or are Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and Afghanistan. Um, now, a relatively small portion of Kazakhstan's far north is outside this region, as is most of Afghanistan. Um, uh, and and um, there is also a small part of it, I guess, that is, it's kind of maybe more in the region of maybe what we could consider Persia. Um, basically, there's a gap between the Hindu Kush and um, Persia's eastern mountains. Uh, it's where the city of Herat is located, and that's kind of an oasis town, but it's kind of outside Central Asia. Um it's not quite south of the Hindu Kush, so it maybe is not part of um, what people would consider South Asia or India um, or the Indian subcontinent. Um, but it's also kind of to the periphery of um, Persia. So that is an area that's going to be, much like Afghanistan, kind of be difficult to nail down. Um, and... Um, you know, depending on when we're referring to talk about Afghanistan, we'll wait until we get to talking about South Asia and the Indian subcontinent. But as time progresses and more and more discernible cultures and civilizations form, emerge, and evolve or dissolve, Afghanistan shall begin to belong more to Central Asia, culturally at least, um, if not geographically. Um, and that's something that's not going to just affect Afghanistan. There are other places that will sometimes be more in the cultural sphere of, say, East Asia 
and then other times it may be more in the cultural sphere of Asia. Pardon for that, uh, that pause there. I had a um, video rendering in the background, or one of my uploads to YouTube, and um, it finished and began playing the episode. So um, you guys are about to hear uh, an old one interlaced with the current one. Forgive me for that. Um, but yes, so... Again, certain times, certain peoples may fit uh, more culturally or at least more um, actively uh, with different regions despite them, you know, being geographically closer uh, to other groups. Um, and then there's sometimes they're, they're equally interacting between both. And, um, yeah, that's just one of those things we'll have to deal with when we get to. So, um most of Afghanistan is going to be discussed next week, uh, but there are, you know, some places where um, people are, um, you know, inhabiting that we will talk about this week. Uh, for now, though, um, um, excuse me, uh, to start the actual, I guess, talk about the, uh, the groups of people living in this region at this point in our timeline, um, we should start with um, the northern part of Central Asia and in the mountains that make up its eastern boundary. Um, now, um, at various points in time that we've talked about before, um, these were these areas were uh, boxed in by glaciers, ice sheets, things like that. Uh, and during the last glacial maximum, and to a lesser extent by the Younger Dryas, this was this was the case. Um, this made the region much harder for humans to live in and travel through, um, due to the nature of, of course, these close ice sheets and an actual desert covering most of the west of this part of the region, um, with the exception of what's around the Caspian Sea coast, you know, um, it makes it kind of a, of not the best place to want to try and eke out a hunting gathering existence. It's not good for animals because there's not much vegetation. And of course, you know, humans at this point in time are getting most of their daily calories, again, from gathering. Uh, so you're you're low on both plants and animals, which again, not the best way for a hunter gatherer to live. Um, but by um, 8,000 BC, uh, these barriers had retreated enough to allow for much easier travel and then later trade to pass through the uh, region. Uh, not to mention fresh water sources being released. Uh, from some of the mountains, um, the glaciers that stayed on those mountains, and of course from the melting ice sheets uh, to the north. Um, in fact, a lot of these mountains still have like unconnected glaciers. They're not part of an Arctic Circle or anything. They they still exist um, year round. Um, and these barriers contributed to separating. Um, the eastern hunter-gatherers, um, and the proto-Siberians. So it's keeping eastern Europe and Siberia and northeast Asia and the peoples living in those regions separate from each other. And this kind of helps them 
I guess, develop differently in terms of like appearance and um, technologies and things like that. So once these sheets are going away, that's going to begin to change. You're going to see um, an influx of peoples from both regions move to this region and interact and, you know, trade, um, interbreed or intermarry, fight uh, some types of conflicts with each other, you know, all that good old-fashioned human behavior. Um, and from what sources I can find, this region is just beginning to see this influx of people moved in. Um, and based on DNA tests of modern people and some remains found uh, around this region that are dated to this time, um, people... Um, uh, excuse me, they, you know, it was primarily Proto-Siberian, uh, North Asian hunter-gatherers mixed in with these European Eastern hunter-gatherers. There's a, there's a fairly decent, um, split between, you know, ancestry there. And this is a pattern that you're going to see repeated, uh, in some form or another for virtually all of recorded history. Uh, different groups coming in from Asia, different groups coming in from Europe, uh, them moving out, and then some of their descendants or cousins moving in, and then them reconnecting or re-breeding uh, or whatever you want to call it. Um, now, for these people that are just arriving... Um, and they would be arriving right around the start of this period, right? 8,000 BC is by the point that these ice caps in Europe have gone and you're beginning to see the glaciers in these mountains melt and really feeding uh, the water uh, sources from the mountains. Um, so there's not a huge number, at least initially, although because of some of the, again, the water sources and the easier travel, uh, it is going to populate relatively quickly. And, you know, it's not going to be the most heavily populated region, um, but it, it, it will have a sizable population. It's not near abandoned. Um, so these new arrivals would be dealing with, you know, a much different environment from the Eurasian steppe. But after a period of adjustment, um, the region you know, probably becomes much more desirable than where they were living beforehand, which, again, helps kind of draw people in from those regions specifically, whereas your neighbors to the south might not view um, the environment as a draw. Uh, there might be things that could be found there in terms of material goods or material wealth, um, that are going to be much more desirable than the environment from people living in, say, India or uh, the Caucasus or Persia. Uh, so, um, sorry, I lost my place in my notes here. Uh, so, um, so it isn't a perfect environment, as there is, again, that sizable desert. But there were ways around it, and eventually, several episodes from now, ways through it. Um, but I should point out that there were some people living in the area prior to this in-migration. 
Um, though these remains have been dated to a period between the last glacial maximum and the start of the Younger Dryas, which was sometime between 20 and 13,000-ish years ago. Um, DNA was retrievable from, I think it was a set of male remains, and the tests show that this person um, living in Central Asia uh, and you know whoever he was living with were cousins of the ancestors of um, peoples that now live on the Tibetan Plateau, um, native Tibetans and Sherpas. Um, and no DNA tests of any population living today show that they descend from this uh, man's remains, um, this branch of the human family, at least as far as we have discovered so far, does not have modern descendants. Um, now, why this man and his people died out is hard to say, you know, with 100% certainty, as we only, again, have a very small number of remains, and his, I think, is the most recent um, one that has been found. I think there's some that are slightly older, um, but they're a little bit harder to, I guess, date, and I don't think their DNA was successfully tested. Um, so um, it's possible that they were cut off from, you know, enough food sources due to the glaciers in the eastern mountains kind of coming up maybe during uh, the beginning of the Younger Dryas or, you know, during that last glacial maximum period. Um, and that then because of the glaciers in the east, they couldn't really cross the deserts like uh, the Kara Kum, uh, which is the main desert covering the middle of this region. Um or perhaps they were able to cross the region, but were fought back by the peoples living in what will become either, um, you know, Persia, Middle East, or, you know, Southern Asia. Um, and I should point out that there is evidence of a potential genetic bottleneck for modern-day Sherpas and Tibetans um, that, you know, show that... Um, this was a problem that every single one of these uh, branches of the of these populations um, had, you know, really hard times living uh, and keeping their numbers up. So there's a drop all across uh, people, you know, that descended from, I guess, this um, proto proto Tibetan Sherpa source. Um, but um, by the time you get to about 9,000 years ago, at least the people living in Tibet, um, their population stabilizes and then, you know, continues to grow normally as you would expect for hunter-gatherers. Um, so, you know, they do bounce back. They're, they're not wiped out completely. Um, they may have been able to finally adapt to kind of this um, mountainous, uh, frigid environment. Um, now, Due to the late arrival or re-arrival of people to this region, um, and again, very small numbers were coming in right around the start of this timeline, and probably uh, the most advantageous aspects of the environment were still grow up, growing and developing. Uh, things like the animal population and plant diversity 
was probably just beginning to kind of explode and uh, repopulate um, areas where water is available. Um, so this region does not have any evidence of early towns or you know agriculture until after the 6000 BC BCE uh, part of our current timeline. Um, though I should make it clear that these people are not dumber or more primitive. They're just coming into a vastly different region than what they were used to. And they were probably more focused on, you know, much more urgent matters. Uh, things like learning which of these new plants can be eaten, uh, which are medicinal and which are poisonous. And, um, you know, probably having to develop new hunting tactics based on their geography and any type of different animals uh, that were in the region. Uh, they'd also have to deal with venomous snakes, uh, which this region is home to, I think, outside of Australia, some of the most venomous and the most uh, varied, I guess, or most numerous different species of business, uh, business, uh, venomous snakes. Excuse me. I had the next video just finish um, rendering, and uh, I had has panicking to stop it. Uh, before it showed up on uh, the audio, so uh, that got me a little jumbled there. Um, uh, though, yes. So again, they're just they're just doing a whole lot with a very alien environment, uh, and so I, I have no doubt uh, that this was a huge cultural and uh, you know every other type of shock you can imagine uh, to coming into this region. Um, and uh, so I did do a little bit of research, and, and it is one thing that I was looking up, uh, and that was about the wild varieties of grains or grasses, uh, things like legumes that were in the area. So um, the people there did have local strains of these type of plants, um, but uh I could not see that there were any, um, I guess, domesticated versions of these uh, plants or any attempts to domesticate them. Uh, so these wild, a lot of these wild sources appear to have been replaced much later, um, well, in a couple of thousand years by some of these um, domestic strains that are imported to the region. Um, they also did have types of wild sheep and goats. Um, in fact, I think the goats that were living here, uh, I think the, the, the largest variety of goat uh, is native to um, the mountains out in the east. Um, but uh, there was not, as far as I'm aware, any attempt to um, domesticate these local varieties. Now, that is not to say that they didn't attempt it, something like that, but if they did, it isn't apparent in the historical record. Um, so, all these wild varieties of plants and animals, um, they were definitely, probably, uh, very um, important and, you know, vital to survival in the region, but probably due to the nature and the time frame of people moving in, um, they're probably replaced uh, sup or supplanted by these much easier to control um, domestic strains that come in. Though uh, P 
peoples will continue to hunt the wild goats and sheep even after they have domestic varieties. This is probably, I mean, this is a form of um, recreation. Uh, later, once you get to a, a sedentary society or a semi-sedentary society, as the case is in this region, um, and it is also a practice of like uh, fighting and types of warfare. So. Um, that is not going away even after the domestic animals come in. Um, uh, but there is one food product that the people living in this region do have a hand in domesticating and spreading, and that is the apple. Um, their trees grew wild around the eastern Caspian coasts, um, and I mentioned this in passing, I think, on the last episode covering this region. But I believe I left it out of the plant domation, uh, domestication episode because it was uh, not in the first wave of domestication attempts. Um, I will be talking about that more in our next domestication special. Um, oh, and there is also another uh, uh, animal that will um, be that will be domesticated in this region. Um, and I'm, I'm jumping way ahead here. Um, but that is the Bactrian camel. Um, that comes from this region and Bactrian camels are the two humped variety. Uh, and they were probably domesticated in what is now Kazakhstan. Uh, but that again, that's later. Um, and this is not the only place camels are domesticated. The, um, the other type of camel, um, which I can't remember off the top of my head, the one-hunt camel uh, is domesticated slightly earlier, but in a different part of the world. These were probably uh, semi-simultaneous uh, domestication events. Um, but again, we'll get to that in our, you know, in future episodes. Now, apples and their seeds uh, were probably used as type of trade items along with uh, other local materials to get domesticated um, seeds or animals from their neighbors in Iran and India, uh, probably along with raiding or finding like maybe lost or abandoned um, animals or fields. Um, now, once these domestic strains arrive or are passed through the region, we begin to see true permanent settlements begin to be spread throughout the region. Uh, though these settlements will remain relatively small, though, as um, you know, nomadic pastoralists uh, will, you know, more uh, will be more favored a form of living in this region. Um, but this combination of lifestyles, along with um, the region's central location, and you know, make it a major crossroad for all types of. Um, transmissions cultural religious um you know genetic transmission um material wealth all that kind of good stuff um you know it's going to be very uh important to um the development of not just this region but the regions that surround it um so uh just keep that in mind there's also a number of rivers uh through um the eastern portion, um, the Oxus River, which is uh, now known as the Aru, uh, I think it's the Arnu Daria, uh, Daria, um, and we'll talk about that more later because it is important to um, uh, what is now modern Afghanistan um, 
and as well as a couple of other uh, places uh, to the uh, north of that. Um, but that does help facilitate trade as well as travel um, from uh, what is now India, so southern Asia. Um, and that region is probably a little bit more uh, developed, at least um, you know, technologically speaking, uh, as well as um, when it comes to agriculture or plant domestication. Um, but we're going to get into that again next week for our episode focusing on or beginning to focus on South Asia, uh, which again takes up the basically the middle and southern part of Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, India, uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, um, those countries. And um, maybe as well, I might stick in what is now Bhutan and Nepal, though they, I don't believe that they have anything that is, um, you know, necessary to have full episodes on. They may get kind of swept up to the uh, Tibetan Plateau episode, but I have a feeling that the South Asian episode should probably be uh, at least two or three weeks, if not more. Um, it'll depend, I guess, on how um, how much time I have next week to record, and, um, you know, we'll take it from there. But um, I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, I'd like to thank anyone who is listening here who may have um, been jo- um, subscribing on YouTube or listening there. Um, I've been still in the middle of uploading my backlog. Um, I've not been as quite as diligent about it as I would have liked, but I have um, the last couple of weeks I've put up about two or three episodes a week. So we're finally into season three, and I'm now doing those um, those October episodes and the the episode uh, discussing uh, Conan the Barbarian uh, has been extremely popular. Um, I have a little over 20 subscribers right now, and um, within three days, I have I've had over 150, um, you know, uh, views on that or listens to that um, that episode there. So a huge, huge episode on YouTube, as well as it's still one of my more popular episodes, just on the the feed. So uh, if you have been listening there, thank you, and of course, thank you for listening here. Um, if, uh, you are, uh, interested or if you have the time, please do like, share all that stuff to, uh, you know, whatever the options are for whatever, uh, platform you listen to, um, you know, please, you know, drop the like, the follow, whatever, uh, the subscription. Uh, I really do appreciate it. It's helping me try to, you know, get more people listening and, um, you know, just grow the the podcast. Um, but uh, I'll go ahead and call that here. Um, if you have any questions or feedback, uh, you can reach me at war at revpod at gmail.com. You can contact me via direct message on Twitter, um, which I'll include the link to that in the episode description. Or you can reach out to me. Um, you can comment on any of the YouTube episodes and I can respond there. So uh, thank you all for listening. I hope you have a good rest of your day.
Have a good day. Goodbye.